Let's turn in the Scriptures together to Psalm 78. Psalm 78. Psalm of Asaph. We'll read the first 22 verses. This is the Word of the Lord. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will utter my, open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from from their children, showing them to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He hath done. For He hath established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which He commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children that the generation to come might know them even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments, and might not be as their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright, and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. The children of Ephraim, being armed and carrying bows, turned back in the day of battle. They kept not the covenant of God and refused to walk in His law and forgot His works and His wonders that He had showed them. Marvelous things did He in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan. He he divided the sea and caused them to pass through it. And He made the waters to stand as an heap. In the daytime also He led them with a cloud and all the night with a light of fire. Clave the rocks in the wilderness, and gave them drink as out of the depths. He brought streams also out of the rock, and caused waters to run down like rivers. And they sinned yet more against Him by provoking the Most High in the wilderness. And they tempted God in their heart by asking meat for their lust. Yea, they spake against God. They said, Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Behold, He smote the rock that the waters gushed out, and streams overflowed. Can He give bread also? Can he provide, provide flesh for his people? Therefore the Lord heard this and was wroth. So a fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger also came up against Israel, because they believed not in God and trusted not in his salvation. There ends our reading of God's holy word. The text for the sermon is verses 9 through 11. The children of Ephraim, being armed and carrying bows, turned back in the day of battle. They kept not the covenant of God and refused to walk in His law and forget His works and His wonders that He had showed them. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, Asaph has called an assembly and in his office as a teacher, he is going to open his mouth and speak a parable, verse 2. A parable. He's going to go through some of the history of their forefathers and he's going to open that history up and uncover what is the significance of that history so that the congregation might be edified for generations to come. He's going to speak dark sayings of old. There is a wonderful depth to the history of the children of Israel. And the history that Asaph is going to treat is not all of Old Testament history. The history that Asaph is going to treat spans from the time of the children of Israel in Egypt and being delivered in Egypt to the time in which David is seated upon the throne and the tabernacle has a home in Judah, in Jerusalem. In that period of time, there are parables to be spoken, dark sayings to be uttered. And these stories are not new. They've heard them, they've known them. And they've heard them from their own fathers. This is a generational instruction that Asaph is now taking his place 
in. He's taking his place in a long line of teachers in Israel, and he's exhorting the parents to take their own places in their own generational lines in Israel. You heard it from your fathers. We heard it from our fathers. Let us hear it again and be reminded of our calling to give it to our children. And the resolve of the congregation is, we will not hide them. We will not hide these parables and dark sayings of old from our children. We will show them these parables. We will utter these dark sayings of old. And what that consists of is we will make known and show to our children the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He hath done. Why Why will we not hide them? There's a question. Why not just let them die, let them rest? Because, verse 5, for He has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. This is the testimony and the law that is His covenant. And it, within His covenant, God has ordained that the children should be instructed by their parents. That fathers are commanded to make them known to their children. There are many examples. You can go back to Deuteronomy and see the strength of those exhortations to parents to teach their children the laws of God, the Word of God. And then, verse 6 shows the expanse of this ordinance. It's not just for one set of parents or one generation of parents, but it is an enduring ordinance that parents should continue to teach their children generation after generation after generation. We heard it from our fathers. One generation, two generations. We're going to teach our children three generations, and our children will teach those who are yet to be born. Four generations just mentioned here but it is, God has established this to endure according to His enduring covenant. The positive purpose of this, our purpose after we adopt God's purpose as our own, is that our children will set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. And then there's a warning and might not be as their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright, whose spirit was not steadfast with God. And then our text. Who is one of these generations that Asaph might pull out of the history books to show what kind of generation we must, be, must we be warned and must our children be warned? Don't be like this stubborn and rebellious generation. He doesn't leave it vague. He says, don't be like the children of Ephraim in the day that they turned back in the day of battle. We love to go back into the history books. We love to go back in the history books and learn about the faith of Moses' parents, Amram and Jochebed. We love to go back into the history books and the history of God's church and learn about the faith, faith of the, all the heroes in Hebrews chapter 11. We love to learn about Daniel and his faith in the lion's den and his three friends in the fiery furnace. We love to learn about the strength of David and the strength of Israel. Well, we need to, to learn and we need to teach our children also about those who have failed. And not those in general who have failed, but those of our own heritage that have failed. We need these dark sayings. We need to learn about the cowardice of God's people throughout history. The unfaithfulness. The inexcusable sin. The dire consequences. We need to understand these things. We need to have the parable opened up. We need these songs to be taught to our children. And this is the sermon. This is the Word of God. The story be told to warn and restrain of hearts that were hard, rebellious, and vain. Of soldiers 
who faltered when battle was near, who kept not God's covenant, nor walked in his fear. The story is of Ephraim turned back in the day of battle. It's a story that is of an earthly nature. That's the illustration. It can be explained as a parable uncovered, and it can be applied and must be applied in the third point, the application. The illustration centers on the identity of the children of Ephraim. Verse 9, the children of Ephraim, these are the ones that were armed and carrying bows and turned back in the day of battle. The children of Ephraim have a prominent place in the history of God's covenant family. Ephraim, remember who Ephraim was? He was one of the sons of Joseph. He wasn't the oldest son of Joseph. That was Manasseh. And Joseph led Manasseh in his left hand to Jacob's right hand and so that Jacob might put his right hand on Manasseh and then Ephraim was brought in Joseph's right hand and would receive the second blessing, not the double portion of the firstborn, but Jacob put his right hand on Ephraim and his left hand on Manasseh and Ephraim received this wonderful blessing, the double portion of the firstborn and he became great among the ten the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. He became so great that when the kingdom divided, Ephraim was dominant among the ten northern tribes and even dominant among the twelve tribes before the split. So that one could look at the, all of the tribes of Israel and say, there's the children of Ephraim. Children of Ephraim are not the whole of it, but they are the main part of it standing for the whole all of Israel, the children of Ephraim. Children of Ephraim had some mighty heroes, including Joshua, the son of Nun, who was probably second among all the great warriors of Israel behind David. He was a mighty warring leader, and he was of the tribe of Ephraim. And then the Probably the most famous son of Ephraim is Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Jeroboam the first. And those two names all by themselves indicate really the fame of Ephraim, the greatness of Ephraim, and also the trajectory of Ephraim, which we'll consider more in a moment. The direction that they headed as a tri tribe throughout history. So we have to keep in mind two perspectives of this term children of Ephraim. One is that the children of Ephraim stand for the whole. They can stand for all 12 tribes. They were that great. Also, when the kingdom was divided, they stand for the 10 northern tribes when the prophet Hosea went to the northern kingdom near the end, right before they were wiped out by the Assyrians. He spoke to them and of them as Ephraim. Ten tribes are Ephraim. And we can also view the children of Ephraim very narrowly as the one of twelve tribes. One of the generations that was stubborn and rebellious before God. There's good reason that the Spirit inspired to write Ephraim, children of Ephraim, rather than more generally of Israel. Ephraim as that one tribe is going to be on the foreground. Then Ephraim will be considered as the ten tribes because that's mostly how the Scriptures speak of Ephraim. And then broadly we'll consider it all of Israel. When we consider Ephraim as a tribe, then we will see one thing stands out in their greatness. They were famed for their military might. They were fighters. They were warriors. They had a great army. If Israel went to war and they didn't have the armies of Ephraim, then Israel was in a detrimental, vulnerable position they were skilled in warfare and great in number. 
They loved warfare besides being good at it and being equipped in numbers for it. They, were, they loved warfare. Gideon, remember Gideon? He went in the end with a small army and Ephraim was upset when their armies were not called into some of Gideon's battles. Ephraim chided sharply with Gideon. And then Jephthah went to war without the armies of Ephraim, and Ephraim was offended that he would not call them. They loved warfare. They had a bloodlust. That's Ephraim as a tribe. And now Ephraim representing those northern tribes. They were on a path of apostasy. Ephraim, the tribe, led the northern kingdom on the path of apostasy. Warfare was their reputation, but unfaithfulness was their legacy. Led by Jeroboam, they rejected God's king, David's line. Led by Jeroboam, they forsook the true worship of God, sacrifices on the altar of the temple, Ephraim turned aside, Hosea says, and became as a stubborn heifer. They were a cow that could not be moved in the direction it must go. Ephraim was a silly dove without a heart, says Hosea. They were fluttering into this direction, seeking help from Assyria, then fluttering to this direction when they became terrified of Assyria. But they sought help from Egypt and they never turned to the Most High God. Ephraim is a cake not turned. They would make a show of being done, being ready. The cake in the oven, you could side, you could see the side or the side against the fire was burned, but then it was never turned, and so it was half baked. It was raw inside and inedible. Ephraim sowed the wind, Hosea says. They sowed the wind. They went into their fields, and instead of grabbing seeds of substance and casting them into the field, they took the wind and threw the wind, doing nothing more than I'm doing right now. And when you sow the wind, you sow vanity, you reap the whirlwind of God's judgment. God would send a temporal judgment for the destruction of of the institution of the northern kingdom and the tribe of Ephraim proper. But God's love was yet upon Ephraim according to the remnant of the decree of election. And that and that fact alone explains how the children of Ephraim the children of Ephraim could remember their unfaithful fathers who were destroyed, and yet they might yet learn from that example. God preserved a remnant. Ephraim was going down the path of apostasy, and even if Asaph was not aware of the end of Ephraim, the New Testament and later prophets Help us to see that this is what the Spirit intends. We need to consider a negative example, a warning of an apostatizing generation. Ephraim was turned back in the day of battle. We don't know the day of battle, what specific day that it is. All we know is what we need to know that this tribe famed for their great military might found themselves in a position where they were called and it was necessary to fight for their own heritage, their own inheritance, to fight for the honor of God's name. And they fainted and they turned back. This could be the day of Hophni and Phinehas when they went into battle with the Ark of the Covenant and thought that that outward form would be enough for them to gain the victory, but God was not with them. And we read in 1 Samuel 4, verse 10, that the Philistines fought and Israel was smitten. And they fled every man into his tent, and there was a very great slaughter. For there fell of Israel 30,000 footmen, 
And the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were slain. It could also have been the day of battle when Joshua was leading the the Israelites to fight against Ai, but sin was in their midst, the sin of Achan, and they were put to flight. They turned back in the day of battle. It could have been any other battles recorded or a battle not recorded. Israel would know, or Israel would understand that they didn't need to know, and that's how we must understand it today. They had it. There was a time for war. They were armed and ready, and they turned back. This illustration can be explained and must be explained, and we'll explain it in three parts. First, we need to understand the meaning of the day of battle. Then we need to understand the reality that Ephraim, the children of Ephraim were armed and carrying bows. And then finally, we need to understand why why they turned back, what their sin was. The day of battle was a day of earthly warfare. And the, the stakes were high. The stakes involved their prom, the promised land. It involved the health and well-being and life of their families. It involved their sovereignty as a tribe or a nation. It was an earthly battle in which arrows would be fired, swords would be drawn, battle lines would advance until there was a clash of iron. The warfare of the nation of Israel was part of their calling as a kingdom of God. They were surrounded by enemies of God and enemies of the covenant, and they had the mandate to destroy these nations. And they had the mandate to defend their kingdom and advance God's kingdom and advance the honor of God's name by gaining the victory. Ephraim was well acquainted with the day of battle. They lusted for battle and they had seen this kind of warfare over and over. And they had heard the stories of this warfare over and over. The children of Ephraim were not ignorant of the day of battle. They knew what that warfare entailed. Even the young boys, the boys here who are in grade school, who would never have tasted of the battle themselves, they would be familiar with the battle. They would see how tired their older brothers and their fathers were would come back in the wounds that they bore and the blood that was shed. They would see that some of their friends and family members wouldn't come back from the battle. They would understand and they would hear some of these stories, often stories of great victory and how God had given them a victory over a great army. They understood what it required of them. The young men, you young men who would be in the army and have all who were above them, all would be called until the ages, until they came to old age, go to battle, and everyone would understand to some degree or another what this battle entailed. And it would be a sobering, sobering thing to consider. It requires all of you, quit yourselves like men, practice, be skilled with the sword. Go in and be courageous. Do not spare the enemy for anything. We are called to destroy in the name of God, for God's honor, for our well-being, for the well-being of our children. It's a holy calling. The warfare of Ephraim continues on into the New Testament age, but all of the outward form of it is emptied out. It's passed away. No longer. Because the church is filled with the Spirit and wars spiritually. And the church still has enemies and the enemies are essentially the same, but the enemies war spiritually also. We war spiritually against them. The consequences still are the same, but it's no longer an inheritance in the land of earthly Canaan, but our inheritance in the promised land. The cause is the same cause, But we don't wave a banner above our physical army as we go into war. The cause is the cause of God's kingdom and His holy name. The ramifications of victory and defeat still penetrate down into our generations and to our children and their children. The warfare still involves individuals. Individuals take part in this warfare. And we fight each one of us against Satan, the world, and sin our sinful flesh, 
and failure in our individual battles will have consequences for ourselves, but also for the whole army, before the whole church. But more importantly, this passage applies to the church as a whole. The church must be a warring church. The church must go forth against its enemies. The nation went to war. The tribe went to war. We must go to war and not turn back. We must go to war against Satan. We must be on guard against that lion that lurks about seeking whom he may devour. We must be on guard as a church, as a congregation, not just officially, but organically, all of us together. We all are on guard against the world and how the world encroaches into our families and into the eyes and the ears of our children and into our lives in ways we hardly even notice. We must fight against compromise in our conduct, fight against compromise in in our good heritage, the old paths. We must fight for survival and the safety and sanctity of the members. We must fight for God's glory. And the church must fight against sin. Satan, the world, and sin. Our own sinful flesh. The church must administer discipline. And any sin that arises in the church must be dealt with. Dealt with so that it comes to a resolution that is pleasing to God. So that there is the church is a holy assembly. So that sins might be confessed and repented of. And if they will not be confessed and repented of, well, with holy warfare, we put that sin out with the impenitent member. We are engaged in warfare. We must not relent. We must not turn back. We must fight against the enemy no matter what form it takes. Unfaithfulness in conduct, unfaithfulness or rebellion in doctrine. Church must go to war. Ephraim then was armed, and the church is armed. Ephraim carried bows. They were well equipped for warfare. They had bows made of wood and string. They had arrows made with wood and stone and iron on the tips. They would fight with earthly weapons. They would wield them skillfully. They would wield them courageously. They trained. They practiced. And their weapons could pierce army, if pierce armor and scatter armies and reach over walls into cities. And ultimately, these weapons, these earthly weapons, were fit to casting down whole kingdoms. Ephraim had the weapons, the skills, the training, and the preparation. And Ephraim had the most important aspect of their weapons, so to speak. And that was the mandate from God to do this warfare. The mandate from God and the blessing of God upon their use of these weapons. No other nation had that. And no other nation had the cause of God's kingdom behind them. They were armed, prepared for victory. So also is the church. The church has the same calling, the same mandate to go to war. And that is a big part, the main part, the essential part of our being prepared and ready to fight is that God has called us to fight. Our children even are called to fight. They must be given these weapons and taught to fight against the strongholds and the, uh, and the kingdoms of the prince of darkness. But the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They are spiritual. We don't have bows. We have the Word. We have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word. And with that weapon in our hearts and on our minds, and especially as it is wielded with our tongues, we are ready to fight against sin, Satan, and the world. And we have the calling to do so. Beloved congregation, you are armed. That needs to be emphasized. 
you are armed for battle. You are armed for battle every time you gather here and hear the Word of God proclaimed. And the Spirit attends to that Word and writes it upon your heart. As that Word reveals Jesus Christ and Him crucified, as that Word reveals the calling that the body of Christ has in its life together to go forth into battle, to go forth into war, to war against the sin that is in our midst, to war against the world as the pressure of their influence presses in on us, to war against Satan, that invisible enemy who is here, there, and everywhere seeking to devour us. We are armed, and we are armed with the Word of God. And you children are armed through the preaching of the Word, parental instruction in the good Christian schools. Your children are armed to fight against these same mighty enemies. And it is your calling to do so. Fight the good fight of faith. Resist the devil. Stand fast against the world. Live, out, live a life of spiritual warfare. An antithetical life separate from the world. Give no place for the flesh in your heart or your thoughts or your life, but mortify the old man in the lust of his members. Mortify him as he is dead in Christ. And do not turn back. That's the third part that requires explanation. Turned back. What that means and why. To turn back, in Ephraim's case, meant that they were marching into battle. They were even perhaps engaged in battle. They saw the enemy. They felt the heat of the clash. And they ran away. This verb, turned back, in verse in verse 9, they turned back is a, a, in a significant form. It's in the perfect tense. The perfect tense in the Hebrew language means that there is a present condition or a present action that has followed as a result of something that happened before it. What happened before it has led to this conclusion. The door has been shut. That's a perfect tense. The door has been shut, or the door, to use the perfect tense in a way that the Hebrew does, the door is shut. That is the state of the door. The door is shut, but it is shut implies that it something in the past has led to that. Ephraim turned back. That's their present state. They're fleeing from battle. They're running away. That's their present state. But the verb, the way it is, the way is, verb is constructed, implies that it's a result of something that happened before. And then we are told exactly what happened before. Verse ten and eleven. They kept not the covenant of God and refused to walk in His law, and forgot His works and his wonders that he had showed them. In a word, what happened before was unfaithfulness. Unfaithfulness to God's covenant. This is not just the spots of infirmity that all God's people deal with as they wait for the perfect perfection of their salvation. But this is the ongoing impenitent refusal of a stubborn heifer, a silly dove without a heart, a cake not turned, and one who has sowed the wind. They were unfaithful to God, and covenant unfaithfulness has the judgment of defeat. Covenant unfaithfulness has many judgments. And God warned Israel of them all. Turn with me, if you have your Bibles open, to Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus chapter 26 is a very important chapter for understanding Old Testament history. 
In Leviticus 26, verse 3, we read, If ye walk in My statutes and keep My commandments and do them, then I will give you rain in due season and the land shall yield her increase and so on. These blessings in the way of your keeping of these commandments and statutes. One of the blessings of, that comes in the way of keeping God's statutes is verse 7, Leviticus 26, verse 7, And ye shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. And five of you shall chase an hundred, and a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. For I will have respect unto you, and make you fruitful, and multiply, and establish my covenant with you. And then go on to the next section, which is verse, begins with verse 14. But if ye will not hearken unto me, and will not do all these commandments, and if ye shall despise my statutes, or if your soul abhor my judgments, so that ye will not do all my commandments, but that ye break my covenant. What are some of the judgments that God sends? Verse 17, And I will set my face against you, and ye shall be slain before your enemies. They that hate you shall reign over you, and ye shall flee when none pursueth you. The same judgments are given again in Deuteronomy chapter 28. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, Verse 15, we have those. The first part of the chapter is the positive. The second part, beginning in verse 15, is the negative. But it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. What are these curses? Well, it includes verse 25. The Lord shall cause thee to be smitten before thine enemies. Thou shalt go out one way against them. That's the day of battle. Thou shalt go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them and shalt be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth. And thy carcass shall be meat unto all fowls of the air and unto the beasts of the earth, and no man shall fray them away. These judgments came upon Ephraim and others in Israel many times. The one spoken of in Deuteronomy 28, verse 25, is the one that Ephraim experienced to the greatest degree. Not just turned back like Hophni and Phinehas the Israel of Hophni and Phinehas' day, where they would live another day to fight. But Ephraim would be turned back utterly and scattered by the Assyrians so that they were no more. The explanation for their being turned back is that God was judging their unfaithfulness. They kept not God's covenant and refused to walk in His law. Therefore, God will not give them the victory, but defeat. They despised Him. They profaned His name. They trampled underfoot His holiness and the holy things of His covenant. They despised the royal line of David in which Christ was. They despised the sacred worship of the temple and the sacrifices that were there, and the rituals that all pointed to Jesus Christ. They despised Christ. Christ will not have respect unto them who have put themselves outside of Christ, who refuse to be, to be associated with Christ and to come to Jesus Christ. The keeping of the covenant is to cleave to our God by a true faith in Christ. To trust in Him, to rely on Him, and to follow after Him from the heart. The keeping of the covenant is to know God through Christ. To find refuge in the blood of the covenant. Ephraim had no part in the blood of the covenant. They had golden calves instead. 
When one truly believes in Jesus Christ and finds refuge in His blood, that true faith flourishes and brings forth the fruit of a thankful walk with God and a life of good works. Ephraim despised that law and broke those commandments. More and more as history progressed, they were farther and farther away from God. And the lack of faithfulness, the lack of or their disobedience corresponds, goes hand in hand with their unbelief. They forget. They forget His works and His wonders that He had showed them. Verses 10 and 11 are put in parallel. Hebrew parallelism. Verse 10, they kept not the covenant of God and refused to walk in His law. Disobedience. Covenant-breaking disobedience. Verse 11, unbelief. They forgot His works and the wonders that He had showed them. You, you won't have one and not the other. They go together. When they have forgotten the works and wonders that He had showed them, they were forgetting the Gospel. And in forgetting the Gospel, they had neither the motivation nor the power to keep His commandments. They forgot, the psalmist goes on to say, the marvelous things He did in the land of Egypt. They forgot that God divided the sea and caused them to pass through. They forgot that the wonderful work that the waters of the Red Sea stood as a heap so that they could pass on dry ground. They forgot. They didn't even think about. And it wasn't before their mind that God was in their midst with a pillar of glorious pillar of cloud by day, leading them through the wilderness, protecting them from the heat of the sun. They forgot that all the night He led them with a bright, holy pillar of fire. They forgot that He claved the rocks in the wilderness and gave them to drink as out of great depths. They forgot that He brought streams out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. Instead, they just tempted God in the wilderness. They forgot that God gave, delivered them by the death of the firstborn in Egypt and the blood on the doorpost and the blood of the Passover lamb was, there, was the blood in their place. They forgot the Gospel in forgetting all of those things. Because 1 Corinthians reminds us that these things are revealing Jesus Christ. From the rock to the pillar's presence to the dividing of the Red Sea and the washing of water in baptism, these all reveal Christ and they reveal the works of God through Christ to give us salvation and to redeem us and to deliver us from our enemies And they forgot that God's power gave them the victory and not the edge of the sword. They forgot about His his favor and His wonderful grace. They turned back. That itself was being disobedient. And it was also God's judgment upon them for forgetting Him. Forgetting His Christ. Forgetting redemption. Forgetting grace. Of this sin, we must be warned. Be not. Be not as our fathers, the children of Ephraim, a stubborn and rebellious generation, be not like those who had hearts that were hard, rebellious, and vain. Be not soldiers who faltered when battle was near, who kept not God's covenant nor walked in His fear. This is our calling not just as individuals, But here, our focus is on the church. Collectively. Officially. Organically. Remember His praises 
His strength, His wonderful works which He hath done through Jesus Christ, who was born in our flesh with our blood and died on the cross to take our curse so that we might be spared the wrath of God and judgment against our sins. Remember Him, lest we fall into the sin of Ephraim and abdicate our post in the army of God and allow Satan to run roughshod through our, the generation to come and allow the world to influence what we teach our children and what our children learn and allow Satan to move us according to our sinful flesh and allow our flesh to breed and grow strong so that the world in a generation or two will be un- indistinguishable from the world. Remember. Remember. Believe. And by faith, obey. The application of this example is to warn and to restrain. So, parents, elders, Pastors, members, remember yourselves first. Learn yourselves first. Then teach the children. And teach the children in such a way that they learn it well and they teach their children. Teach them about Israel and Ephraim. About Ephraim's greatness and, who, and the God who made them break, made them great. Show them Ephraim's skill in warfare and the goodness of spiritual warfare. Instruct them in regard to preparation and being skilled with the weapons that we have. Not bows, but the Word of God. Give those, that sword, that weapon, to your children. Let them wield that sword and teach them to wield it well. Teach them Jesus Christ. Show them Jesus Christ and His cross. Remind them of God's works the works of salvation recounted in detail throughout Psalm 78 and the rest of the Scriptures. Works which show God's unconditional love and abundant mercy. Works which show the power of God's saving grace. And remind them that in all of these works we are pointed to our Lord and our Savior and His sacrifice and His reign in heaven. And teach them also the obligations that they have in the covenant. Ephraim had those obligations and neglected them. Teach them that it is their calling within the covenant in gratitude to God and by the faith which God has given to us to cleave to the one true God and His Son Jesus Christ even as that reality has been sealed to us by baptism. Teach, Call your children to trust in Him alone and to find refuge and strength and our victories in the mediator of the covenant. And teach your children the consequences of disobedience. And do that with discipline at a very young age. But don't stop there. Show them the consequences of sin in their life. Show them the consequences of sin in their, for the church and those around them. Show them how sin breeds more sin and how a church filled with members or a generation of children that forsakes the commandments of God and forgets the works of God is a church that will come to a very important day of battle and will run away. And then there will be no more church from an outward perspective. Show them Ephraim's inexcusable unfaithfulness. Show them that consequence of a scattered nation of ten tribes. An institution that is no more Because they forgot God and His wonderful works and disobeyed His law. And as you give them this warning, don't fail to encourage them in the very same way that Asaph does by implication. There is such a generation that has failed miserably in these ways. There is such a nation that has been wiped out externally so that it is no more. But their children, 
children according to election were not destroyed, preserved. Do not think that the elect never experience consequences for their sin. They do. We need the warning. But we need the encouragement also that the battle belongs to the Lord. And so, by our example, with our exhortation, with our admonitions to our children and to one another as fellow parents and church members, we are to encourage one another to be careful and not careless, zealous and not indifferent for the spiritual warfare of the church. And being assured of the victory that we have in Christ, then together we take heed and with all our hearts we walk according to His Word and keep His covenant. The church, together with the church's children, which are members of the church, will not be turned back in the day of battle. Ultimately, they shall have the victory and not even the gates of hell shall prevail against it. Trust in Him. Call upon Him. He will deliver us. And we will glorify Him. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, be merciful to us as we take up our weapons, the Word of God, and we go to war against the enemies of Thy covenant and kingdom. And prosper us, not for our own sake, but for the glory of Thy name, so that all that we do in our warfare for the cause of Christ's kingdom might serve for the glorification of Thy name and the building up of the church for generations to come. Amen.